So, if you were here two weeks ago, we dug into the chapter four of the Gospel of Mark. And in that chapter, you may have remembered we met Jesus the teacher. There was a lot about boats and ocean, seeds and parables. We learned about Jesus who is this teacher who's teaching his disciples and his followers. And then we moved to chapter five and we met a totally different Jesus, Jesus the healer. And that was all about healing. So there was the man possessed with demons out in the tombs and then there was the woman who had been hemorrhaging for years and years. And then finally there was that child who was raised from death to life. So we met Jesus the teacher and Jesus the healer, and that's the stage that we now move in to chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. And so at this time, Herb will come up, and he'll read verses 1 through 29, and we're going to stop at 29 today and then pick up there next week. The Gospel of Mark. He left that place and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went went about among the villages. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. King Herod heard of this. King Herod heard of this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when, excuse me, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. But John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. 
For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to, sh to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John, John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thank you, Herb. Let's join in a spirit of prayer. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So just as we've done the last several weeks, at the end of some reflections that I'll give you about these three portions of the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, there's time for you to bring up a thought, a phrase, an insight, a verse that's sticking with you. So feel free to jot that down in your bulletin as we go through so that you can share with us what's coming out of this for you today. So there's three parts here this morning of this part of the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. And so it opens with Jesus returning to his hometown along with the disciples. And on the Sabbath day, Jesus is there and he's teaching in the synagogue and the people are really pretty dumbfounded by what is happening. And so they start to say these familiar lines. Isn't this the kid that we knew from years ago, the son of Mary? And not only are the people who are watching him really confused, they're actually fairly offended by his teachings. And that's when Jesus delivers that line that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own kin and in his own home of origin. And that line has a bit of a sting, doesn't it? Some of us here might understand that fairly well, though. I imagine some of us may have left our hometown or your family of origin, gone out into the world, done something, made something of yourself, and then returned back, but you're still just that little kid in that setting mostly known for the family that you come from rather than what you are doing in the world as your own person. And one thing to note is that by claiming himself a prophet, Jesus steps into his own power in this moment as one who's from this long line of countercultural figures within Israel. And now here's a particular part of this passage that's really worth noting. When these hometown folks are shooting off their rhetorical questions about Jesus' lineage, 
they talk about Jesus being the son of Mary, but they don't talk about who Jesus' father is. They don't say the son of Joseph. But they do list off siblings. So these people, they know a good amount about the family that he comes from. And yet they leave out this father mention. And that really would have been a pretty direct insult to Jesus' lineage, his character, his dignity, his honor in this first century culture. It would have been a way for the hometown people to be saying out loud that Jesus is in some way illegitimate. And that kind of social history, being one without a father, would have been really scandalous. That would have been really serious town gossip. And there's a Greek word for this, which is ultimately translated into these words, took offense, in our Bible. And that is scandalizedizo, scandalized. And something that many people don't know about the Bible, if this is your first time reading the Bible, which I know for some of you in this room it is, <coughs> is that there's these four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and some of the stories that are in them are the same, they overlap, and some of them are completely different. You can find them in one Gospel, but not the other. And so, throughout these Gospels, we read these different stories of Jesus, and in different stories, different parts are emphasized. And so this hometown crowd insulting Jesus' lineage is a really good example of where that happens. Because in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the authors kind of cleaned it up a little bit. They didn't really leave this part in about this scandal of illegitimacy. That's really a Mark part of the story. So in Mark, you see this subplot going on that is this tension between Jesus and his family, Jesus and his hometown, this tension between the Jesus now and the Jesus of his origins. So that's what happens at the beginning. That's part one of this morning's scripture. And then we move to part two. And in part two, Jesus is sending out his disciples. And it's kind of an odd mission that he sends them on, isn't it? It's a mission of go out but take nothing with you. Go out and take such meager possessions that you might take no money in your belt, no change of clothes, but just rely on the hospitality of others the entire time that you are out on this mission. It reminds me of a documentary that I saw a few years ago in which somebody took $5 on the West Coast and managed to rely on the hospitality of others to make it to the East Coast safely, over time trading up, over time asking for what you really needed for the next step. And it's kind of an interesting social experiment for somebody in a documentary. It doesn't always work out that way for real life folks. But there's a way in, this, in which this passage is kind of this assault to this absolute independence that a lot of us are raised to really value. It's instead this absolute interdependence and dependence on hospitality and on God's blessing throughout the journey. They go out with very few supplies, very few material objects, but they have this really strong message, this really powerful message of healing and of hope. And so they actually do go out, these 12 disciples, and they start curing people of diseases, and they start casting out demons, and they really do amazing works. And so they may not have been caring very much materially, but they were caring a great deal of anointing by God. 
And so not only did they have this call from God, this anointing, the disciples had also been through rigorous training to get to this point. Because in chapter 4, they had seen Jesus teaching all these people with the parables. They'd seen him talk about these seeds and these ways in which people can learn through parables. They'd had this instruction in pedagogy at its base. And so they had also seen through their own lived experience, remember when they were freaking out in the boat and the seeds were going all over the place and Jesus calmed the storm. So not only did they have this technical pedagogical experience, they also had this lived experience of being absolutely scared and Jesus' word and power calming the storms. And then in chapter 5, we remember that they were there when he raised that girl from the dead and when he healed the woman from the hemorrhage and when he brought that man back into community. So they'd really seen how these healings could work. They had seen how Jesus' work could really liberate people and bring people back into community. So they had that training. And then Jesus sends them out on the mission. But right before he sends them out on the mission, they saw that Jesus himself was rejected in his hometown. So they saw that this isn't an easy mission. People aren't just going to accept this word. There's going to be rejection along the way. And we can also read that first part of this morning's scripture when Jesus is being rejected in his hometown. That's a little bit of a foreshadowing to Holy Week. It's a little bit of a foreshadowing to the crucifixion and beyond. And so each gospel, like we talked about, has a little bit of a different account on what the mission of the disciples would look like. And that's reflective of the ways in which the Gospels were written for different audiences who would have been familiar with different strategies of evangelism in the day, different missionary strategies. So in Mark, what's really exciting to draw your attention to is that he talks about households. And that makes sense because they'd just seen that Jesus preaching and teaching in the synagogue, which was an established religious tradition place, a place of religious authority in the day, that didn't go so well. So there's this emphasis on household missionaries, that you would go into households and change these intimate small groups of people one at a time, and that that would be a way that you would spread God's word, this focus on the households. So these first two parts of chapter 6, Jesus in the synagogue, prophet rejected in his hometown. He sends out the 12. What is up with this third part, right? That's the question that a lot of us have when we now move into this kind of barbaric third part. And so that's where we'll stop today's chapter six exploration. We'll split this chapter into the last half next week. This is a part that we want to focus in on. It's the death of John the Baptist. And in a lot of literary ways, this is straight foreshadowing of Jesus's death to come. It's a foreshadowing of the idea that an important prophet would be put to death at the hands of political figures. So in chapter 1, we had a little bit of a hint at the death of John the Baptist. There was a little mention of that. But this in chapter 6, and that's a good way into Mark, right? Chapter 6 is where we actually read what happened, that full story. And this is called intercalation. It's the sandwich effect. And you see this a lot in the gospel, and this is a really good example of it. So Mark has a piece at the beginning that kind of goes together, preaching in the synagogue, send you out to talk to the households. And then there's some pieces at the end, but right in the middle, it's sandwiched, intercalation, and that's this beheading of John the Baptist. And so, the reasoning behind why this would be right in the middle of the narrative about doing mission in the world can really be understood as a way of showing 
that the mission of Jesus is not separate from the context in which it's happening. And these socio-political contexts in which it's happening on the ground there, King Herod, John the Baptist, these different powerful figures, it's not a strange aside or an interlude or an accident to put this gospel message, to put John the Baptist's execution right in the middle of it. That is a powerful and a meaningful insight into the dangers of mission and ministry of Jesus in the world. So at the start of this section, this third part, Herod is confused because he's thinking that Jesus might actually be John the Baptist come back to life. And so he's wondering what is going on over there. And so we infer from this that King Herod actually sees a lot of echoes between Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministry. And this story is told again in the Gospel of Matthew. We can read a different version. But in Matthew, the thing is that Herod is actually afraid of the people who follow John the Baptist, who thought him a prophet. So in Matthew, Herod is afraid of the people. But in Mark, where we are, Herod is afraid of John himself. Herod thinks he has come back from the dead. And so in this Gospel of Mark, Herod actually remembers that he protected John. He understood him as a holy man until this request by this dancing child for his head on a platter comes up. But in Matthew, Herod always wanted John dead. So in Matthew, Herod is afraid of the people who follow John, and he always wanted John dead. But in Mark, Herod is afraid of John himself come back from the dead. And he actually found Herod, to, or found, Herod found John to be a pretty interesting man and kind of a holy man that he was intrigued by. And so this is another example in which the gospel stories, they differ. And the different individual motiv- motivations of the context in which they were being told differ in terms of how they are told. And so I imagine that these differing understandings, if you might guess, would lead to different theologies. And so you see a variety of theologies today in different churches, people believe different things. And that makes a lot of sense because even in the times of the gospel writers, there were different versions of stories being told that emphasized different parts of the stories. And one story is not necessarily more right than the other. And you might think about it how as a family around a dinner table, you might tell stories of your grandparents or your grandparents' siblings and various things that they did And one person at the table will tell that story a little bit different than the other person. The stories are not necessarily more right than the other, but they're slightly different. They emphasize different parts that are of interest to the teller of the story and to the hearer of the story. And so I encourage you not to think necessarily that these different stories are a reason to put it all aside. None of it can be true, but rather that it gets at this idea that there are multiple angles that we're getting at these different types of truths. And so, another thing to note in the Gospel of Mark is that King Herod is kind of a sympathetic figure. He's not all bad. He's actually fairly sympathetic. He's this flawed leader in this honor and shame culture who put out this oath that if he had really thought it through, he might not have put that out there to that girl that said, I'll do anything you want. He might have instead thought that through a little bit more. He didn't think through that oath. He didn't think that she would then go and ask her mother for this head of John the Baptist on a platter. And it says in the scripture that Herod is deeply grieved. Deeply grieved, which is kind of an interesting thing to note about him. 
Because his oath is his honor, and so he has to follow through with this. This culture of John's death is in the context of a culture of honor and shame. And John didn't die, in this case, at the hands of maybe an enemy in battle, which would have been an honorable death. He's dying instead at the hands of a woman asking for his head on a platter, which in context would be a very shameful death. So there's two things to perhaps take away that gets at this whole piece. And the first is honor and shame. So in the first section this morning, Jesus is in the temple and he's preaching and he talks about prophets without honor in their hometown. He even uses that word. In the second section, we have the disciples going out and perhaps people will not accept their message and perhaps there's shame there. And in the third section, we have this idea that John the Baptist's death is in and of itself kind of a shame-filled death. So honor and shame work their way in and out of this chapter. The next thing to understand, perhaps, is this overarching message that when you go out and you do God's work and ministry and mission in the world, that will not be met always with open arms and open hearts and minds, that perhaps with that work there's also rejection, as Jesus had in the temple. There's suffering, there's distress, perhaps even death in John the Baptist's example. And that those sufferings and rejections and death generally come at the hands of people who are in greater places of power. So that basically brings us up to the middle of chapter 6. And I'll recap this again next week. That in chapter 6, we have Jesus in the temple, sending out the disciples, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And that is where we leave this morning's scripture. And next week, we see how these threads carry through.